1: Plus.
0: Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly interview show where top chess players, authors, content creators, and accomplished amateurs discuss their careers and share stories and chess improvement tips. Perpetual Chess is a part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network, and we'd like to give special thanks to our presenting chess education sponsor, Chessable.com. For more information about the show, you can go to perpetualchesspod.com. But without further ado, let's get to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess Chess Books Recaptured. This, of course, is a monthly chess book review show, a bonus pod, if you will, where we talk about a beloved chess book. Often it's a classic, sometimes it's a book that we think should be a classic. Um, And joining me is a longtime friend of the pod. He is a cognitive scientist, uh, the co author of the New York Times bestseller Invisible Gorilla. Hopefully, you guys all have heard him. He's been interviewed on Perpetual Chess. Uh, We've reviewed books together before and of course he's achieved many even greater things than being on perpetual chess in his life he's also a chess dad and a chess bibliophile as always comes across when we get to talking so let's welcome christopher shabri back to the show welcome christopher thanks for having me back Always good to have you. And I I love that you're one of the people, Chris, who's figured out that obviously there's tons of people I want to interview on Perpetual Chess more than I ever can. So you're one of the people they figured out the easiest way in is if you offer to review a book. And obviously you always come prepared. So I greatly appreciate it.
2: It's a good thing. It gives me a good incentive to actually read a chess book also.
0: Yeah. And, and this one as, as we've discussed quite an ambitious undertaking. So we're discussing the mammoth book of the world's greatest chess games. So basically the idea of this book is a compilation of what the authors determined to be the 145 best chess games of, of all time. Um, and the authors obviously know of what they speak Uh Fide master Graham Burgess, who we just interviewed and we'll be playing that interview for you later. He's sort of uh, the, um, the leader of the project, but uh, Grandmaster John Nunn has been involved, Grandmaster John Ems more recently, uh, Grandmaster Michael Adams, Grandmaster Wesley. So all pitching in and evaluating these classic games and providing amazing annotations. So it, it's it's a great book. And, and Chris, it was you who suggested uh, that, that we uh, this be the book that we cover. So w- what's been your relationship with this mammoth game book? Well, the first edition of this, it's actually in its
2: fourth edition now, and there are a few chess books that have gone into four editions. Uh, and its it stayed around. They keep coming out with new editions and making it better. And I finally realized that this is a classic book because it keeps on selling um, for the last 24 years, and it keeps on getting better. And when it first came out, which was, I believe, in 1998, the first edition that had um, 100 games, I saw it on the Bookshelf in a bookstore, like a Barnes and Noble or something like that, and I said, "What's this? I've never heard of this publisher before. This is not this is not Batsford or Gambit or you know uh, Pergamon or whatever all the publishers were." So I kind of ignored it because it looked kind of like a little like mass market paperback, you know, like a, a thriller novel or something like that. You know, um, small size and and so on. But then it kept on coming out in these new editions, and finally I realized that it's basically a book put together by the same team that does all the great Gambit chess books, um, John Nunn, um, Graham Burgess, um, John M's, that whole crowd um, that have done so many great books over the years they just made a book for a different publisher. Um, and I guess um, Graham, you know he told us sort of how that came about and, and we'll hear it in his interview. but finally when I saw the fourth edition was coming out, I, I couldn't believe they were doing another edition after 10 years and it felt right to me like a good time to go back and go over the classics. Um, like a lot of the games in this book I had seen when I was when I was very young, I uh, hadn't seen a lot of them since then. And there were all kinds of games in here that I had never seen. Uh, and it just felt like a good time to go over the classics. And we always talk about how for improvement, you should tu- you should study the classics. That's one of the common things that, you know, grandmasters say, trainers say, and so on. I'm trying to get better. A lot of people are trying to get better. Where do you find the classics? Well, here's a book with 145 of them with impeccable... Um, analysis um and selection and they you know was i guess as we'll discuss they have like a whole system for selecting the games they have criteria not to say they're perfect um, in their decisions but uh it felt like the right time to to do this and it really feels like a book that everybody should know about and very of the very few books that you know everyone should have who has who likes chess books
0: yeah it's kind of like one-stop shopping for chess culture But it's more than that because the games are so instructive. And obviously, um, you know, it covers all phases of the game, being that they're complete games. So you you learn a bit about openings. Obviously, the middle games are kind of like the, um, you know, the main attraction. There's just some incredibly... tactical melee type positions, like, uh, peppered throughout. Um, and then obviously there's some classic end games as well. So you get a little bit of everything and they have criteria where they weighed the books based on the historical significance as well as sort of the quality of the game. So you're learning chess history as you go. So obviously this, uh, my great predecessors by Kasparov gets mentioned a lot in this regard, but this is kind of like, um, a condensed version of it it's not so condensed the the paper version is 800 pages and this has been a big project but compared to the multi-volume my great predecessors it, it it is uh shorter and yeah just a fantastic resource and i actually feel um chris like you know being that i'm asking people what their favorite chess books are basically every week um I was surprised to hear Graham say that the other mammoth book, and and we should probably say because I didn't know this, that part of the reason it has the title Mammoth is that this is like a series that goes beyond chess, kind of like the Four Dummies series or the Complete Idiot's Guide to series. So that was the genesis of the project, as Graham as you'll hear Graham explain, but that's so that's why it has what otherwise I might consider uh, an an unusual title. Anyway, it hasn't been recommended that often on the podcast. I remember Mezgin Amonov, in one of my very early interviews, uh, said that it was a fantastic book. I think he was referring to the regular Mammoth book, and we should be clear, there's a games and then there's a sort of general chess which is, again, sort of in the vein of the complete Idiot's Guide to Chess, where the idea is if you're new to chess and you want one book that's going to teach you as much as you can handle, it's a book that you'll acquire. But this one is the games one. So probably for a slightly more advanced audience, of course, because it's all these grandmasters judging the highest quality games, it's very concrete at times. I mean, it's just unavoidable that if you're having two heavyweights slug it out in some tactical slugfest like Kasparov, Topalov, or whatever it may be, then there's going to be a lot of variations. If you want to learn to appreciate it, but but they did an amazing job, and it, yeah, it's been been fun to go through it.
2: Well, speaking of speaking of weight, it's it's heavy. Um, <laughs> it's it is 814 pages plus an about the authors page. And it's 145 games. So if you do the math, each each game is about five to six pages. I think it comes out as, and um, you know, it's 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 fair. I would say it's fairly dense. Like they don't waste space. You know, they don't waste space in there at all. So you're getting tremendous value for the money for anyone who like tries to calculate the value of their books. You know, per dollar spent, even the paperback is twenty five dollars US, and you've got 145 of the best games ever with excellent notes. And, and the Kindle edition appears to be periodically go on sale for as low as $3. So um, there's, I don't think there's any better value in chess books than, than this either.
0: Yeah, I agree. And as we're recording this on a Monday, um, March 20th or so, this will likely be out by Friday, but it's $3 as we speak. And yeah, this is the kind of book that you could read. You could spend more than a month reading it. Once per year, and read it every year, and and still gain from it. Um, I also wanted to mention we we mentioned all the authors involved, but the forward is by none other than Viswanath and Anand, so they have some just incredible heavy hitters. Um, and I wanted to read the lead by Anand, so the first thing you read when you open the book in the forward, which is uh, Anand says. In virtually every sport, there's the debate about who was the greatest of all time and which was the best contest. Comparisons made over long periods of time are far from simple. Comparing the tennis players of the past with those of today must take into account advances advances, such as carbon fiber rackets and scientifically designed training programs. A further difficulty is that for events predating television, one often has to rely on written descriptions rather than video records. Chess is in a uniquely fortunate position in this respect. Chess notation Means that the great games of the past can be played over just as easily as those played last week. This book aims to present the best 145 games of all time. Um, yeah, and as we asked Graham about, there are one or two notable omissions. Because Chris, what do you consider to be the most famous chess game of all time?
2: The most famous chess game of all time. Well, I know what you're going to say. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. You 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 might you you might be right about what the most famous game of all time is. Um, I can think of some games that I thought were omitted from this and it's not a knock on the book, but there are some interesting ones missing. I think that we can, we can talk about also, but I'll go with your answer to what's the most famous game of all time.
0: Yeah, which of course is uh Paul Morphy's opera game and we do discuss with uh with Graham why that didn't make the cut and I thought he had a fantastic answer. Um I mean first of all we already had an inkling because they talk about uh again one of the criteria being the quality of the the game so it can't just be quality on one side it has to be a hard fought game and of course uh you know all shout out to the Duke and the Count but they they didn't play that well in uh, in the opera game. Um but so it makes sense why the games aren't included, being that they're, they're, they are they're have this pure process of just judging it based on their voting, and they don't put their thumbs on the scale, as you'll hear Graham discuss. So in that sense, I think it's kind of silly to even nitpick. And the bottom line is, in these 145 games, there's just an incredible array of quality games. And I'd probably, you know, obviously, I've read my share of chess books, and I feel like um, I only consciously remembered having seen maybe 65% of them before, something like that, um, in, in that neighborhood. And, and they're such amazing games that even if you have seen them before, um, often it's been a long time. So um, how many of these games struck you as new uh, versus you, memorable that yes.
2: is a great. That is a great question. I should have kept track of that as I was going through them. You said you said you could spend a month on it. I, I spent several months on yeah. it because uh, I actually played through. I would say about ninety seven percent of all of the notes. So I I, I read it on the Gambit um, Chess Studio app, which is kind of like the Forward Chess app and the other ones where you can play through the analysis and so on 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 your phone or or, or tablet or whatever. So it took me quite a long time to get through all of that. And I should have made uh notes as I went along on on which ones were new to me several of the recent ones um were, were of the more recent ones were new to me and there were some uh ones from i would say the sixties and the fifties um that I had never that I had never seen before a lot of the older ones are are very much classics that you know many readers especially people who are you know, players interested in chess books, you know, will have seen because they show up in in other anthologies of great games and and other you know great players, players' best games, collections, and so on. They're they're in there too. Um, but unlike my great predecessors, also it's not just about world champions or the super top players. Like there are several games by players who were nowhere close to being world champion, but just produced a great game, and and several games by contemporary players who have not ever made the Candidates Tournament even, but who have played several great games. I'm thinking of Dubov in particular, got, got two games in the current edition and, you know, he's one of everybody's favorite players, but, you know, he's not even been in the candidates tournament yet. So he's not going to be in, um, you know, those, those other kinds of books.
0: Yeah. But again, when you play through the games, I mean, they're all, they're all pretty impressive. So, Um, it, it makes sense in, in, in that respect and yeah, it's, it's lots of fun. Um, and we're going to play the interview that we did with Graham for you, but just quickly before we do that, maybe we should discuss other comparable game selection books. I mean, it's hard, you know, I don't know if there is, there is that much that's comparable, but certainly there've been many other sort of. Assorted games books, and then what the sort of hook is or what the sort of idea behind it can vary greatly. Obviously, there's something like Chernov's 100 Most Instructive Games of All Time, and there's uh, you know, uh, Logical Chess Move by Move, which is like some are picked for their instructive value. Um, of course, Kasparov's great predecessors picked for their sort of historic value and to make sure you show different players. Do you have any uh, favorite game collection books, Chris? Yeah, I think this is.
2: Really a unique book in that it does attempt to cover all of chess history and select only on the basis of games, not on the basis of players. Um, you know, there are books of like my great predecessors, for example, is one that's based on players. Chernev also had a book called The Golden Dozen, which was games of the players he thought were the best twelve of all time. Um there are the book, there are the collections of instructive games. You just mentioned a couple of them. There are some newer ones too. Um, understanding chess move by move is a great modern one by John Nunn, which is, is sort of picking out instructive games um Those games I think tend to be more one sided and of somewhat lower quality because a lot of the instruction comes from seeing how one player executed a plan successfully and you know exploited strategic you know weaknesses and and so on or um, opening you know opening mistakes. Um, this is really kind of a unique game the closest book the closest book I can think of is one by Andy Soltis. Who came out with a book on the hundred best games of the twentieth century ranked? So he actually printed them in in, in rank order, um, and that's an interesting one to compare to this one because most of the books from the mammoth book of the world's greatest chess games are from the twentieth century, um, since that's uh, you know when um, well that's just when most of the, the the games that we know were played. There are so many more games played then than before then. Um, there are a number of books which are. Um, Sort of shorter periods, like um, the best games of the '70s, the best games of the '60s. Um, another one that I think gets overlooked a little bit is um, uh, the Informant. Folks came out with a book of so every every issue of Chess Informant, um, they uh, have people um, panel of grandmasters and top annotators right vote on the best games of the previous issue. So if you compile all those tables, they made the thousand best games. I'm um, covering about a forty year period from nineteen sixty six to two thousand and seven. um that's a thousand games. it's not annotated, but it's there's you know it's a comparable you know sort of effort to pick on the basis of games no matter who played them in what tournament you know and uh, and and so on um, so I think those are some of the um some of the comparable ones. there's some good lists on online that you can get to of of great games like chess base has a you know, 200 games for, for replay training or something like that. But a lot of those are also sort of or, oriented towards instructional value, as opposed to this kind of admirable attempt that the authors of this book made to sort of pick as much as possible on the basis of quality of the game, um, as opposed to some other criterion, although instructional value was one of their criteria also, as well as historical value, too.
0: Yeah. And, and speaking of the instructional value, one thing I think we should mention is, I mean, the games themselves do sparkle, so anyone can appreciate this book. But because they judged on the quality of the game and they wanted it to be fighting from both sides, that means that, again, there there are going to be moments that are extremely concrete. So for that reason, I would say, um, in terms of like what rating level might most appreciate this book, I, my personal guess is maybe from like sixteen hundred USCF FIDE on up, you might benefit most because again, there's just um, complex ideas being illustrated, tactical melees and, and variations that one just simply has to go through. Of course, Chris, having spent more time on this project than I did, went through them in more detail than I did. But I w- was able to appreciate what was lacking in 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 my hurried approach in order to get to get through this. Um, so i would give that warning but i mean as we said it's a book that even if you're below 1600 um playing through the moves playing through the games you will be impressed and it's definitely the kind of book that you can pick up and come back to repeatedly over the years so even beyond that it's uh worth getting especially if you're spending three dollars on kindle and (laughs) one other thing to add is uh the it's available in various formats. I mean, there's the book, there's Kindle. And as Chris mentioned, the chess studio app, which I have to be honest, I I found the app a bit clunky. Um, Chris and I were talking before we recorded. He, he didn't mind it as much. Um, It took some getting used to for me, but um, since whenever there isn't an, air quote ebook where you can play through the moves on the app. Since I complain whenever there isn't one, the fact that it exists and that I was able to consume the book that way is obviously a major plus. And the app is free. You just buy the book. I think it was like 12 bucks or something like that.
2: Yeah. The the, the book is cheap in the app. Um, yeah. I mean, the whole book. Plus you can play through it. Plus there's a, I don't know, maybe a eight year old vintage engine in it or something like that, or a six year old vintage engine in it. So you can get some, you know, help. Like, you know, if you have, if there's ever a move, you don't understand at all. Why can't he do this? Well, yeah. just tap the engine button and then you'll be told why that move is no good um, in a, you know, in a couple of seconds. Um, I, I think, um, yeah, I'm a bigger fan of the Gambit app. Maybe it's just because like all the Gambit books are on the Gambit app and I like Gambit books so much. But um, don't be, no, nobody should be confused. This, this book is not published by Gambit. It's published by a company called Robinson that publishes all these mammoth books. I guess Graham will explain all that to us. But you get it on the Gambit uh, chess app, which is called Chess Studio. So it's yeah. it's kind of a weird, it's kind of a weird um Situation there, I guess. The, I guess the other thing I would say is, um, you don't have to play through all the variations in this. Like there are a lot of variations. It's a very concrete style of analysis, um, which is part of what I think Gambit books are known for: is really prizing like accuracy and f- really explaining what was going on and, and why. But there's lots of textual notes, and each game ends with um, like three tips. Um, I forget exactly what they call them, but sort of like points to remember, instructional points from the game. And a lot of those are very pithy. Hopefully later we can read some of them because I think there were a lot of great nuggets of advice there that you get right after seeing a whole game that illustrates it, which is really, which is really cool, I thought.
0: Yeah, there are a lot of nice touches in the presentation. Definitely aim to discuss that further. But first, Chris, I think we should play the the interview before we uh step on anything else that Graham revealed. So, I think listeners will have enough context now to appreciate the fact that, you know, this has been like a life pursuit for for Graham and his co-authors, but yeah, began in 1998 and been updating it ever since and uh the Chess World is the greater for it. So, Chris and I both enjoyed that interview. So um, we're going to take a break and play it for you. And then Chris and I will be back to uh, discuss the book a little more. And then we've also, since it's always a pleasure to have Chris on the podcast and you know he's got the knowledge of the unique intersection of uh, chess and cognitive science. We have a couple uh, unrelated to the book questions that we'll catch up with, uh, with Chris on when we get back from the interview, which we will play for you after this break. Listeners, I just got an update from AimChess.com, and unfortunately, I'm still behind on the clock 72% of the time. Working to get better, progress is not just a straight line upward, but I am getting better in the other aspects of your game which AimChess can measure, which are openings, tactics, endings, advantage, capitalization, and resourcefulness. And of course, AimChess automatically gathers your games from the major chess-playing sites to give you actionable insights and even quiz you on tactics that you may have missed during your game. So please go to aimchess.com and check out the product and if you do decide to subscribe, use the promo code perpetual30 to get a discount on aimchess.com. Perpetual Chess is brought to you in part by betterhelp.com. If you're struggling with depression, anxiety or another mental health issue, BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist in under 48 hours. It's professional therapy done securely online. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions or send a message to your therapist as needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline therapy and financial aid is available. If you go to their website, you'll see lots of testimonials such as this one. Working with Kendall Bradford on transforming my thought patterns has been very helpful on my journey to improve my mental health. You'll read lots of others like that as well if you go to the website betterhelp.com/chess that's betterhelp h e l p .com/chess and and if you use that url you get 10% off for your first month of use more details are in the show description And we are here with who I believe to be the main author of the mammoth book of the world's greatest chess games. He is a FIDE master and a prolific author, and he's spent so much time working on this project, and we're privileged to be able to speak to FM Graham Burgess. Graham, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Yeah, we're excited. So we have so many questions we could ask, but I guess the, it makes sense, of course, to start at the beginning with this project in particular. What was the genesis of, I know there's two Mammoth books in various editions, but particularly the games edition, but just generally the Mammoth, Mammoth project?
3: Uh, well, how long a story do you want? Um, <laughs> but basically it was, uh, that. well, you remember a long time ago, I worked for Batsford. Uh, used to be so sort of like one of the huge players in chess publishing, and by the time I was leaving that company, um, I was contacted by a company called Robinson, uh, asking if I want to write uh, a book called The Mammoth Book of Chess for their series of Mammoth Books. And uh, anyway, I I did that. It's got a very long, another very long story short. And uh, around that time, I founded Gambit together with John Nunn and Murray Chandler. And this same company, Robinson, came to us as a company then and said, we'd like another chess book. What do you like to do? So We had a very nice dinner out here in a nice restaurant in London, I forget where. And, um, yeah, we all sort of had a chat about what sort of another huge chess book would, would appeal. And the idea of a games book came up. Um, the idea of an openings book or a puzzles book kind of also was floated. But um, the game sounded like the most fun, and John was quite keen to do that as well. Um, John Ems was also doing some work for Gambit back then, he's now branched off into uh, his own pursuits, so it was a very natural um, team to uh, to write this book. Um, so we defined our uh, our our plans for the book and so sort of what, what we thought should be in it and you know, drew up a short list, voted on them, um, and then we got to work on the book. But um, but yes, it was uh, it's company Robinson, which was founded by a guy called Nick Robinson, who was actually the same Cambridge College as me about ten years earlier. Uh, so it was like an, a little upstart publishing company with big ambitions. So uh, that kind of was a natural fit for our own little upstart company with big ambitions. Um, of course, they had they were much more general publisher. We were obviously just a chess publisher. So um, yeah, it's all it's all worked rather well, I think, and. Um, at this point, didn't win the Book of the Year prize, but not everything can. Well, you, go
2: ahead, Chris. I was just going to say, are you, are you surprised that it's it's in a fourth edition now? Like, the first one must have been sometime in the 90s, as I as 1998,
3: I, recall, right? I think. Yeah, how many, first how mammoth mammoth many books, books was go into four editions? That's a lot. It's pretty well, but then the, the Mammoth Book of Chess is also in its fourth edition around the same time. So... Um, Yeah, well, of course, with the Mammoth Book of the World's Greatest Chess games, the the update was was kind of natural each time. You know, 12 years have passed. We should have had a few more games. And, of course, you don't need to uproot all the existing material. The new games go at the end because it's chronological order. Um, It was fortunate we made it chronological. Otherwise, if we made it sort of, you know, top voting to lowest voting, then we'd have had to reorder everything. Um, So it's a little rare, and I've there have been some good in-house editors there who've who've maintained relations with us and uh yeah i don't see them that often living in the us and they're in london but um yeah we've been some good guys there who've um and oh and one of the one of these the, was a lady sorry and uh, and they've yeah they've always been kind of enthusiastic i'm not quite sure how well the games book has done relative to the the mammoth book but, um, yeah, they can see that chess books can succeed, unlike many publishers and organizations, and so they've they've been pretty enthusiastic throughout, and they see that this is a long term seller, so best to keep it in print rather than letting it die um, that's great, so, so I
0: infer that the the regular mammoth book, the non games book, that one has has sold well it
3: uh yes <laughs> I, I don't have an exact figure. But it's it's six figures. It's not seven. <laughs> not not, but, not yeah. many books get to seven. But um, yeah, was, Bobby teaches chess is probably the only seven-figure chess book, isn't it? But uh, yeah, I, it definitely got into six-figure sales. Um, that was in large part because of um, because there was sort of like this low-price hardback edition. But um, the sales have been rather good in total over the four editions. I. I honestly don't don't know. I mean, I could go back through a whole bunch of royalty statements, but I don't know how many yeah. copies the mammoth book, of the world's greatest chess games, are sold.
0: Yeah, um, I mean, and and speaking of low prices, Graham, Christopher, and I today were we're marveling. It's three dollars on Kindle today. I don't know if it's always
3: three dollars on Kindle. I think. I think this company, the, the Robinson, have some ideas about you know lowering the price and then raising it again. And it's all it's all a bit chaotic, but I think it's to try to get it higher up the Amazon um, okay. sales charts. Uh, and it, once it's got a little high, it tends to stay there and be self perpetuating. But uh, yeah, I mean, if you want the Kindle edition, then then yes, buy it now before before the price rises again. But um, I do recommend the Studio edition. It's obviously much more full featured
0: yeah chess studio, of course, being the app that that one can use um to read it and and I'd like to get into the games, Graham, so you guys decided sure. on this project, and then you even once you know it's a game collection, you still have to sort of get into. Uh, how to judge the games. And of course, you talk in the introduction about you have the panel that scores the games, but you also talk about that your considerations were quality and brilliance, instructive value, and historical significance. So you're not looking yes. for these sort of one-sided blowouts that there
3: are some yeah. famous games in that
0: category. How did you guys come to that decision?
3: Um, I think John, John Nunn was a big, big, big mover in making sure that it was based on quality rather than sort of yeah, you know, flashiness or yeah. You know, of course, most of the games are very flashy, but um yeah, he I think also with his background as a problemist and study solver, false brilliance has always been uh, something that he's found fairly distasteful. And um so these games were yeah, you know, it was just someone's murdering a much weaker player and decides <laughs> to sacrifice a whole yeah, you know, queens and rooks and things rather than just win a simple end game. You know, that that I think we we both find that quite you know, unimpressive and um games were someone yeah well of course you know the peop the question people always ask is why no morphe games yep <laughs> and <laughs> that is it. where the morphe games fell down um he had a very short career most of his games were against players much weaker than himself his most famous games were absolute crushes of people he could have given queen odds to or peace odds at least um but we there were a number of morphe games in our shortlist and uh, of course, we could have gone back after we'd come up with our selection and said, "Oh no, we've got to add in something or other." Yeah. But that would have made it kind of fake as well. Yeah, you know, we we defined our criteria, we voted, and that was our list, and we didn't tweak it after that point. I mean, you could also say, "Why the no games in the 1940s? Um, okay, not a whole lot of chess was played then, but there were plenty of big tournaments. But we didn't sort of think we need a quota. You know, it it's obviously if we've been doing the mammoth book of the world's greatest chess players. Then we'd have started with our list of top players, and we've had a few games from each but um yeah it's it was kind of kind of weird how that happened because each of us had at least one morphe game that was that would have made our own personal selection um but we didn't we didn't choose the same one for that um i think my, the one one of mine that would that was in my selection was one of his games against Anderson in their match. But again, it was a little kind of one-sided. It was one of Anderson's pretty bad games in that match. But it was it was a nice win. But the others didn't see it that way. So, um, yeah, I mean, yes, maybe marketing-wise, we should have tweaked our selection to make it sort of... Um, yeah, you know, more pleasing to me. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you exactly. get
0: asked that a lot and it was on yeah. our list of questions, but on the other <laughs> sure. hand, I don't know if that's going to cost you book sales because people aren't necessarily like checking to see what's in there be- mm. before they buy
3: it. I don't think it, I, uh, it suddenly cost us maybe half a store in the Amazon reviews. Oh yeah. Half a store in mean, the Amazon reviews do cost you sales. So, so that,
0: yeah, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, reviewers can be persnickety. The worst is when sometimes book reviewers will, like, if the book came in poor condition, poor physical condition, uh, they'll, they'll write a bad review of the book. It's like <laughs> the authors are like, thanks a lot. You know,
3: great. <laughs> and, yes.
0: Was, uh, destroyed my book, and I get a bad review for it. <laughs> Yes, yes,
2: it
3: does happen, yes.
2: <laughs> At least on, on the $3 Kindles, you avoid the book came in bad condition reviews, I suppose. You do, oh, yes, yeah. yeah, so or it was overpriced or something.
3: But yes, yeah, so of course, then you get these ones where a book's gone out of print. And then it starts selling on the secondhand market. And someone says, $900 for this book is outrageous. Right. And again, that's hardly the publishers of the author's fault. Yeah, I would recommend they buy 300 copies of the mammoth book
2: of the world's greatest <laughs> chess games instead. <laughs> right. Uh, um, well how about a, i have a i have a question which is I love mm-hmm. the fourth edition so much when will we have the fifth edition and oh. is is there any <laughs> <laughs> and is there any chance that you would so the i i at first i of course noticed the morphe games were missing mm-hmm. but I also noticed how few games there were from the um from the 1800s in general um and maybe it's because when I grew up starting to play chess and so on I was reading a lot of older books and those older books tended to have a lot more games from the 19th century, and I, I fully accept that there are many more great games being played these years than there were back then, but have you given any thought at all to um, looking for ones you might have forgotten? Like, if they didn't, if they weren't on your shortlist that you started from, maybe there are some great games out there that have come to your attention from the past that, you know, you would have put in if, if you were doing it all over again, even though they're now, like, past the, you know, the cutoff date and so on, and so on. But what's, what about future
3: plans? Has there's no i don't think there's any plan to revisit some of the earlier periods so if there is a future edition it would yeah you know, i think we'd follow the plan of adding new games to it but i did have one thought with the fourth edition of going back over a few games that we didn't include to explain here is a five famous games that didn't make the cut just so sort of, you know as as an interesting little piece but The new games had such lengthy notes, you know, and I I suddenly wasn't going to cut a Wesley or Michael's notes at all to make room for something of my own. Um, So the book was already getting kind of even more huge than it had been. Um, But I don't know. Yes, there's probably more good games played each year than there was in a typical decade in the 19th century. Um, So, I mean, yeah, the the simple answer is no, we're probably not going to do that. It's it's a reasonable idea. but uh, that might be better left for other projects. As um, I, I, I must also say that in the new edition mammoth book of chess, one thing I did do was look back over some of the shortlists and the games that didn't make it. I mean i'm not i I'm not saying I deliberately chose the substandard games, but these were games that perhaps didn't make it because there was bad opening play or errors too many errors in them. so I went and found the you know the in- most interesting parts of those and uses in the other other mouth project um but of course, that was more of the you know games from the last thirty years or so um and oh and in my book chess Highlights of the Twentieth Century. I went I I did something similar there choosing fragments from um from games that were made our shortlist perhaps had a very nice combination or a nice ending but the whole game itself wasn't quite of the same quality um so I don't know um yeah. <laughs> okay.
0: And you mentioned uh, uh, Grandmaster Michael Adams and Grandmaster Wesley So's involvement, yes. which of course is amazing. You've got Wesley So annotating his own games towards the end. And also just wanted to mention the, the, the modern games you reference are excellent selections. I mean, a lot of them were ones I'd seen in the last handful of years, but they've kind of escaped my consciousness. And then to see them again already was, was was definitely a treat. But of course, I'm interested in how you got these super grandmasters involved.
3: Well, of course, one, one element was, was COVID. Um, <laughs> these guys were pretty much sitting at home, twiddling their thumbs, thinking, do I accept this invite to yet another rapid online tournament? And <laughs> of course, that, that pays far better. But right. I, I, I suddenly, um, Wesley, I, I know for sure, was was <laughs> not enjoying those things, no matter how much money they were bringing in. Um, now, Wesley just li- lives just the other side of, of town from me um in one of his books he called me his neighbor which is not literally true you know <laughs> i i i did have fears that there'd be people coming up to my doorstep once to get our neighbors um you know, autographs but he's the other side of the twin cities from me um but yeah i know him pretty well he we've you yeah, sort of um met, met him met up with him a few times at the well what used to be the chess castle chess club in minneapolis um I'm only nine hours' drive from St. Louis, so I went down to some of the tournaments, particularly when he was winning them. Um, so yeah, I, I get on pretty well with with Wesley, so it was it was a fairly natural to contact him. And Mickey Adams, well, when I was a teenager, he was like a, a pre-teener, and he was winning all the tournaments I was playing in. So I've known him for many, many years. That's in the southwest of England. Um, so again, you know, super grandmaster, not many tournaments to play. Uh, I tried contacting him. He'd also been involved in quite an interesting project that we'd talked about with him, but uh, in the end, he went to another publisher with it, I think because his co-author preferred it. So I knew he was interested in writing.
0: I was just going to say, I'll be interviewing him about his new venture with Quality Chess in a few weeks. Right. Yeah.
3: Okay, sure. Um, And uh, also, I'm trying to... I th- yes, we, we'd already done um, some small projects with them. Again, you know, thanks to COVID, I guess you could say, uh, the Desert Island Chess Puzzles, uh, where they'd each done one small volume for that, which we then combined into one larger book. So, um, yeah, so that, that's how their involvement came in. Um, trying to make it reasonably simple for them. You know, we were saying we want 20 more games. You know, you guys get your shortlist together, vote on it, and... Uh, I did the um, player biographies for that, for that new material. And they basically just had to analyze the games and uh, write them up. Um, and they both did a great job, I think. It was, you know,
0: yeah, it's super sure.
3: grandmaster. Sometimes you get the big name author and they actually produce something fairly uh, unimpressive. And you then, oh, dear. I thought Wesley's notes were really
2: instructive in some of the games. Like he has a different, he has a more conversational style somewhat than I yes. think um uh the, the the rest of you or at least the original three authors and um sometimes he explained a lot of points that um you know would have gone un, unnoticed in, in in other games so it was nice to see like some different approaches to some of the games, especially yes. the
3: especially the newer ones. That, I mean that could be partly because of the generation he's from. He knows that you can produce pages and pages of, of accurate computer you know generated analysis and he knows that no one's interested in that. Was back in the 1990s, a page of accurate analysis. That was that was something incredible. (laughs) So, um, so it may well be that he knows. Well, okay, I could sort of, I can put a few sentences explaining this, or could put sort of, you know, a page of amazing analysis. No one's going to play through. So that might be part of that as well. Sometimes I'd sort of say, "Hey, you do need to put a variation in here because you know." This, not everywhere, <laughs> even with all the software, not everyone's going to work it all out to the finish and the conclusion there's, that that it, there should be. So, um, yes, yeah, some of his his games do have a little more analysis in them than when he when he first sort of drafted them. Um, but yes, yeah, so, uh, when you have a player with that sort of insight into the game, you do want them putting things into words. Um, and yeah, he did that. I, Mickey also, as well, I think, uh, gave plenty of verbal explanations so i think they both kind of nailed it in terms of what we wanted yeah for the project
0: i agree but as the overseer of the project um did you were there any moments i mean obviously we're in the engine age so i don't know if they engine checked it themselves or if they just did it based on you know their super gm talents and then you and en- engine checked it were there any sort of errors that you had to uh, gently make them aware
3: of I think for all the people involved in this book, engine checking things as you go along or at least before you submit it is just so, it's just part of the process. So, but what I have found over the years is even if material's been carefully engine checked, further checking will reveal new points. Um, so, so, yes, no, none of it was arrived on my desk, sort of not checked. But um, a really thorough checking of it did lead to, you know, sort of, hey, you know, there's more to say here or there's there's a there's a defense that needs to be considered. Um so no, there was there's no real conflicts where, you know, they produce something interesting but totally wrong. <laughs> and it's it, not no, I mean of course you never can be quite sure how accurate would their analysis be if they didn't have a computer check. I, I guess it would be pretty good. But there, there would be errors. I mean right. it, when you look at Kasparov's analysis from before he started working with the computer all the time. It was amazing, but there would be things missed.
0: Yeah. Um, and I found it interesting, the point you highlighted in the introduction about as you look at the older games, there there was a tendency where if there was like an early annotation, particularly by the player in the game, that like mm-hmm. any wrong analysis would subsequently be repeated um, once, once it was initially wrongly analyzed by one of the principals.
3: I think you know, until the recent recent times, people didn't realize how many errors there were in chess annotations, even by the top players, you know, you sort of, you know, I think there was one, one thing where, one book where John, when John was doing the algebraic classics, uh, series, and there was, I think Vyshevsky had given some variation and it missed a mate in one. And it, and it wasn't <laughs> just a typo is he just missed a rank mate or something. And you, you're just not expecting that until you until it just hit you in the face so many times. to think everyone makes mistakes in their analysis, but there was also this thing with Capablanca where errors he would never have made over the board he would make in his notes. So you got the impression sometimes when they're writing they they weren't even they, their brain wasn't fully switched on. Um, there was there was some anecdote
2: about Capablanca that he didn't own a chess set at some point, so maybe he was just writing the notes like. <laughs> All blindfold or
3: something like that, but then again, you'd think he would probably play blindfold chess better than than he wrote some of those notes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, it's I don't, also there was some a tournament book. I think it was called about nineteen eleven. John drew attention to this. John Nunn drew attention to this in one of his books, and um, the tournament book. I think the the guy who wrote it he kind of complained afterwards he wasn't paid very much, so he didn't put much work into it <laughs> so he again, yeah, a player who was quite capable of writing excellent notes just didn't bother um so can 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 yeah. I come back briefly to the topic mm-hmm. of like what might have been in the book but
2: wasn't in the yeah. book so i I have two quick questions along those lines sure. One, we we can we can give up on morphe because i completely i completely agree with your your arguments, but how come you couldn't find a win by Aronian?
3: (sighs) (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) <laughs> and we, we, there was plenty of games that were influenced by his tremendous ideas and concepts, but but yes, they never they weren't ones where he came out on top. "I." It's because we weren't we weren't looking at, for a selection of games in that in that way. We just. Oh, I under. Uh, yeah, I, I guess that was I just mean, one I'm, that jumped
2: out. One that jumped yeah, out at me at the end was I was trying to think what did I not see? You know, like you go through 145 <laughs> games; they're incredibly great games. Like there, there are mm-hmm. no games I would have taken out of the book. Certainly, mm-hmm, right who, yeah. who am I to judge? Yeah. Right. But then I thought, what did I miss? Like, what was not there? You know, and that was the first thing that came to mind was, um, was I noticed that there was only two of his, of his losses. But maybe a better think, question is, like, were there any games that you really wished had gotten in there, but like your co-authors yeah. like didn't vote high enough? Like, what would, you put, what would you have put in if you could have like
3: put a couple of extras in yourself? Well, just before I answer that, I, another question is why are there no wins by Michael Adams in there? <laughs> as, yeah, as, one of the, as one of the authors, I think <laughs> have we got two of his losses, <laughs> but they're both amazing losses. I mean, you know, not not everyone can lose games as good as that. Um, yeah. But, um yeah, as I say, there were no quotas, so I know, I, I'd I have to check the shortlist, but I think there were plenty. I think, oh, what, an Ironian win over Carlson was definitely on our shortlist, because that's one of the ones that I used in the Mammoth Book of Chess, which was from one of our shortlists. Um, very nice game, but I don't know. Well, you, you have to ask Mickey and uh, Wesley why they didn't choose that one. But as as you say, the 20 they did choose were, were great games too. Yeah. Um, so your your, your question, oh, get games, I thought, oh, um, that's a tough one. There was, I think one, one game that I really wished had got in was... Uh, one of Kramnik's wins over Kaspar from from their World Championship match, the one in the Grunfeld. Um, also felt that was quite instructive as well. So that was one of our criteria. But um, John, that that was one where it was just me and John Nunn doing the updating, and he he's. I think that we we had quite a lot of games where we had to induce a tiebreaker, and uh, so we had a lot of games getting like eight or nine votes and the tiebreaker was always quality of play. And of course the ones which are in that tiebreaker zone where you've, where you've elevated into it partly because of the historical significance of it, they tend to fall down at that point. So yeah, the, the excellent, the ones that got got up as eight or nine votes, if they were in a sense, if there were less important games, they had the best chance of making the selection because there were there more because of the quality of the play. Um, that's one that's there were probably a number i mean obviously this is four editions over many years and yeah, there are a number of yeah personal favorite games that didn't make it in but whenever there was a game which one of the authors felt had to be in and then it would make the selection unless one of the other authors felt that it was totally unsuitable and okay. we did sort of have an agreement that if someone gave it five votes out of five and someone else gave it one out of five, then there had to be a reason for that you, you know one out of five means there is something fundamentally wrong about this game which means it can't possibly go in, so it should be something you can resolve with analysis or discussion. i you know it should be that you know one of the players just made an absolute blunder and you know it was i don't know it's um th- there weren't many games that came into that category though um I think hmm. there was yeah maybe we should publish our, our actual voting <laughs> and yeah. you know, but we we only publish the totals and who annotated it i think in the in the summary in the book um oh and also normally the annotator would be um someone who gave it the highest vote um so if you gave yeah if you gave a game fi- a vote of five out of five and the others gave it two out of five then and it made the selection you would be the one annotating it. So it wasn't like, I think this game's junk, but I've still got to annotate it. That's not going to work very well for anyone. Um, But uh, in terms of... Sorry, go on.
0: Oh, I was just going to say, we just have one or two more questions. But in hearing Mm -hmm. you discuss the accuracy of the games, which is obviously one of the criteria, as, Mm -hmm. as, uh, as chess has evolved in the past decade since this book's original publication we're starting to have some ways to measure accuracy numerically. Like obviously you could use the Lee chess sent upon loss or the chess.com accuracy score. Those might be somewhat crude. You could probably even enlist a, a stronger engine um, and, you know, be more exacting in terms of trying to measure it. Um, do you guys do any, like as that technology becomes available, do you have any thought of sort of removing the judgment from the quality air quotes aspect of the score?
3: I think there's a fundamental problem with trying to assess games in that way, because more complicated games will, of course, have more errors in them, yeah. and how is the computer, unless it's an extremely clever AI, how it's going to assess how well the players navigated extraordinary complications, I mean, obviously, Capablanca games will come out as more high accuracy than Hawkeen games. Of course they are. He kept things simple. Yeah. <laughs> games will have errors in them, of course they will. But if you turn Capablanca or Karpov into those positions that Tal got into, um, I doubt they'd have handled them as accurately as he did. Um, so I think that's, that's one reason not to rely on on these. Sort of. Um, and also the ratings they gave some of the players. Did Capablanca have an incredibly high rating from a similar process to that? Yeah, um, from Ken Regan's thing, yeah. But I mean, yeah. Capablanca was a pretty good player. <laughs> he was, but but yet he lost to Alekhine. How can yes. he lose to Alakian if he's 400 rating points higher than him really? <laughs> you know, so, um so yeah, I'm I'm certainly not picking on Capablanca, absolutely one of the greatest of all time, but but when when you subject his games to that kind of checking, they are going to come out you know somewhat flattering Compared yeah. to some of the other players, it's um, an
0: excellent. It's an excellent point. And hearing you mention that, it actually, I did in playing through the games. I felt that a lot of them were kind of on the tactical side. Like that, I didn't feel like there there were as many sort of positional wins. Was that something that like? I, is that just because if people are choosing like their favorite games, do you think it's just going to naturally point in the
3: direction of uh tactical fireworks? Well, I mean, one of our criteria was the brilliance of the play right um, so in using the word "brilliance," we did have in mind that there had to be some complications some sacrifices some attacks um but there are some positional masterpieces in there too so yeah we we certainly did favor the uh you know the tactical shootouts i guess um but particularly the ones where there was absolutely mayhem on the board and it lasted yeah. many moves you know some of these tar games were it was absolutely both players over the precipice for you know say 20 moves and neither fell. That that to me, and I, I I think to John as well, you know that that's like the you know the real test of a player if they can if they can find the impossible moves to stay in the game in a position like that where any slight mistake is fatal. Um, but um, but yeah, you're saying about the um on the the errors in games because sometimes when we analyze them in more detail to annotate them, we did find the games weren't as accurate as we thought when we voted on them. And again, you could say, well, why not throw some of the games out at that point? But, um, yeah, we, we felt that, you know, th- these, it, it's almost the the initial impact the game makes is perhaps the the biggest point of whether it should be included. You know, if a chess player looks at this game and is inspired by it, then to throw it out because you find some you know, deeply hidden errors in it uh, would kind of be wrong. But, um, yeah, I think you know, some of them we did view less favorably after we'd annotated them. I think there was sort of... Was it Krogi Stein that um John Nunn annotated, and there's a whole series of moves got a question mark from him in that, and you know I think he you know I think he was thinking, mm, well, maybe with hindsight I shouldn't have made the cut um but I mean any game with weighty ideas that that you know really strikes you as impressive when you first see it, I think it's it's not a bad choice for a book like this, yeah um. But yes, the more modern selection, its uh, you're going to weed out games with lots of errors quite early on. But one of our top scoring games, the ones that I think there were four that got 15, uh, the maximum of 15 votes, was of course this um, karpov Kasparov game from 1985, where there was an exchange of inaccuracies in the opening. And people asked, you know, people could ask, well, why has this got your top score? And I think it's partly because it was where it was played. It was, you know, like the decisive game of World Championship pretty much, and and that the grandiosity of the concept that Kasparov used in that game was just, you know, none of us could give it less than a top score, um, even with that little blemish early on. Um, this was
2: the... Um- the pawn sacrifice in the Sicilian with the knight on, with the knight on, goes D3, on D3, yes.
3: The octopus yes. or whatever people call it, yeah. yes. I
2: remember, seeing, um, I remember seeing the final position of that game was a diagram in the New York Times chess column, you know, mm. back when you had to wait until the next day yes. at the earliest to find out what happened, you know, and it was all, all the way from Moscow and so on. Mm-hmm. I, I have a mental image of seeing that diagram in the New York Times um, yes. from when it happened. so I. I, I, yes, I can't disagree I, with that selection at all
3: i mean <laughs> and anyone who was who was interested in chess the time that game was played obviously has some kind of special connection with it i think i, I remember it was on um was on Britain they had uh, teletext um you know on and they had the chess page on that and the moves, you know, you'd just be watching this page and refreshing it now and then and a new move would come up and think, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> and, uh, and well, I had a school friend then who was also a, a good player. He was, he was actually the British under 18 champion that year, uh, Sean Elliott. And so I had someone to compare notes with, you know, when I got back to school each day. Um, and we were both absolutely blown away by this game. And, uh, there's also another thing where, um, I was at some weekend tour once and I was the guest I was staying at. There was a guy who just returned to chess after an absence of about 10 years and he'd heard the name Caspar, but never seen a game by him. So I had, <laughs> um, I had the pleasure of sort of saying, well, why not have a look at this one? It's considered huh. one of his best. And yeah, he was just sort of, yeah, it was, but it was weird because this was already in the 1990s and you know, this guy was sort of seeing this for the first time it's, um. Yeah, it's just kind of a special moment, I guess.
0: Excellent. Well, the book is, is filled with special moments. I mean, so many incredible games, as as Chris was saying, like, it's easy for me to say, like, why couldn't there have been this in there? But there's nothing mm-hmm. I would want to take out. It's a fantastic selection. Okay, that's
3: that's good to know. Yeah. Um, yes. If you're saying, well, get rid of all this junk and put this in. Then it's, <laughs> yeah, it's a little disappointing. But yeah, but now I think the, the the one one thing I do recall is that um, each game Almost every single game had one or two really critical moments where you just had to spend hours and hours trying to sort out what was really going on, what should have happened. And I do apologise if that led to some rather lengthy notes, but particularly when we were writing the first edition of this, you couldn't just sort of say the engine says this is winning, and you know you can check it out for yourself if you want. You really had to work through the proof of it yourself and um, and present your evidence, as it were. But um, yeah, it was. Yeah, it's a very memorable book to have worked on. I know it's. I've, I, I'm almost losing count of the books I've written, but I think it's it's thirty. Well, it depends how you count them. I know how many I've written, but I, I'd say I've written thirty books. But some of them have been through about four editions. Some of them are co-authored. This is certainly one of the more memorable.
0: Excellent. Yeah. Well, we agree, and and thank you, Graham. We'll have to we'll have to chat again, you and I, sometime if you're up for it, about your other sure. twenty nine books. But. Uh, but, Suddenly, uh, you know where to find me. Excellent, and and Chris, do you have any uh, questions before we say goodbye to Graham?
2: No, that was great. I just, I, I hope you guys uh, soldier on and come out with the fifth edition. I'll be ready to, I'll be ready to buy it as soon as it's, as soon as it's out. <laughs> we'll
3: see. It's hopefully some years <laughs> off. Because <laughs> it's so much work each time, and I don't yep. know if we get Mickey and uh, Wesley again, but uh, we can try. <laughs>
0: Yes, ex- excellent work by them. And just as a closing note for listeners, when when Chris asked Graham, we can see him, even though this will be audio only. When he asked him about the fifth edition earlier, there was a pain to look on Graham's face. <laughs> 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 but, but Chris, but Chris persists. <laughs> so anyway, thanks very much, Graham, and congratulations on on the success of uh, this and your other books. Okay, thank you very much. Our friends at Chessable keep dropping new courses. Some of their latest include... Play the Open Sicilian 1 by Grandmaster Miguel Santos that's got 15 trainable lines that you can use to play against the Open Sicilian, kind of one-stop shopping for an opening that can be overwhelming to learn. And friend of the pod, Simon Williams, is out with the Harry attack, fighting kingside fianchettos after 1d4, along with I.M. Richard Palliser. And they've got tons of new stuff coming from Grandmaster Hans Neiman, Liniar Dominguez, and the list goes on. And all of their Courses of course utilize space repetition to help you remember the opening or tactical sequence or end game that you learn. So be sure to go to chessable.com and take a look at what is new.
1: If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape.
0: And we are back, and we hope you enjoyed that conversation with uh, Fide Master Graham Burgess. I certainly did. It's, knowledge of chess is impressive, and yeah, it's like we were saying before we left you guys. It's just cool to see this sort of lifetime dedication to this project, and it's good to hear that this book has uh, has found a lot of fans. Um, and before we left, what what Chris and I had been discussing was was the structure of the book. We felt like it's really well presented in in specific ways. Um, number one, it has really nice, the first time they, they show a game from a player, they have little biographies of the player. So you're not reading pages and pages about a person, but it would typically be two to three paragraphs that give you a sense of their playing style and their accomplishments and doesn't make you feel like you're just kind of... Uh, dropping in cold to a game, it gives you some context um, for the games. And then as, as Chris alluded to, they have these really nice, you know, everybody loves bullet points, myself included. And at the end of every game, they have three lessons from the game where they sort of, um, you know, uh, highlight things that, that you can take away from the, the game, which I do always find to be helpful because especially with older books, that's often lacking.
2: Yeah, but they have something else too, which is there's a little like, one paragraph narrative of the game before the game starts that tells you something about the game itself. After they tell you about the players, they give you like a little um, like a little prologue that sort of in, in words describes the struggle, almost like you would describe sort of like a sporting, you know, encounter or something like that. Right. It doesn't have moves and variations, but it just sort of says how the advantage, you know, swung back and forth and, and, you know, what was the critical, you know, the critical moment and so on. So this is sort of like nice, get you ready for like what you're going to see.
0: Yeah. And then of course they quote from different sources along the way, as we talked about with Graham. I mean, sometimes they're, you know, looking at primary sources of other people's annotated games and able to, uh, to pull in sources there Uh, for any listeners who heard my recent interview with uh, Joel Benjamin and Harold Scott about winning the world open. We were talking about grandmaster Edward Goofeld a little bit and discussing his famed Mona Lisa, which, um, I'd seen, you know, I had a little bit of familiarity with that game and then went and looked it up when I read about it in Winning the World Open. And now here it was again in this book. And they they had a beautiful poetic quote from Gufeld that they pulled from one of his books. So this is uh, Gufeld after showing this game, which is fantastic, of course. Gufeld's Mona Lisa. He, he writes, every artist dreams of creating his own Mona Lisa and every chess player of playing his own immortal game. No game has given me as much satisfaction as this one. To this day, I feel happiness when remembering it. In such moments, all my failures at the chessboard are forgotten, leaving only the joy of a dream come true. So for any shortcomings that we may have highlighted when discussing Goofeld with Joel and Harold, uh, a very poetic uh, description of a beautiful game. And there's uh, lots of little things like that throughout uh, Mammoth.
2: Definitely. And um, it's it doesn't really overpower you with all that stuff too. I think it has a, a relatively light touch. Like you don't get sort of an encyclopedia of the history of each game and everything that's been written about it and so on, but you do get you know, some of that flavor and color. So it's not just like variations and so on. And, you know, the textual notes often are excellent little lessons by themselves in like certain pawn structures or certain openings and so on. I was thinking especially of some of Wesley So's notes in the newest edition, um, actually sort of explain step-by-step what's going on in the opening, which sometimes the other games don't do, which is fine. You know, not every game needs to be annotated in exactly the same way, but um, there's a, a sort of a potpourri of, you know, Subtly different approaches to how to explain games as well. But they all do end in those three lessons from every game, um, which I think are have a lot of pithy and useful bits of advice in them.
0: Yeah, they definitely do. One that I highlighted was actually one of the games that that Graham discussed, this uh, Krogius-Stein game, which Graham said apparently doesn't, uh, you know, has its share of mistakes. But I was pretty pretty impressed by it because it was not one that I, like, already knew Going in. And the lessons from the game for that one are once you're committed to a sacrificial attack, there is no turning back. And there's lots of sacrificial attacks in this book. And number two is it's important to recognize that it's difficult to conduct a prolonged defense against a vicious attack. Even though you may feel that it's objectively correct to grab material and weather the storm, you should take into account the human factor. And number three, it very often happens that one error leads to another. the realization that something has gone wrong can easily prove a dis- distraction and lead to a loss of concentration, be especially careful after you've made a mistake, another one may be lurking just around the corner. And yeah, obviously, that's come up on the podcast before. this idea of trends that Jonathan Rowson has written about in Seven Deadly Chestains, but um, it's always nice when they you see these ideas in action in these games.
2: I think that's a good example of the variety of lessons that they draw too. Like some of them are psychological, like how should you react, like to, you know, unexpected things that happen in the game on a psychological level. Like the engine doesn't care if it just made a mistake; it's going to play just as well afterwards. But we're not that way, so it's sort of alerting ourselves to, you know, the psychology of the game, but also some sort of tips for thinking. Like one of one of the first ones I noticed was from um, a game between um, Bobby Fischer and Bent Larson from their candidates match in 1971. Um, which was a game that sort of went into this complicated end game with um, uh, past pawns and everything. And, and they um, make the point in their advice, um, decision-making in a messy ending can often be simplified by considering which are the dangerous pawns, the big pawns that are headed for promotion, and how to advance one's own and stop the opponents. So sort of practical advice on like what to focus on with all the moves you can calculate in a really messy, complex position, maybe focus on the, you know, the past pawns that are farthest advanced. It almost seems obvious in retrospect, but when you're at the board and there's so many different things going on and so on, like having a heuristic of what to, you know, how to organize your thinking, I think can be helpful if you can remember these kinds of uh, nuggets.
0: Yeah. And the one where Fisher trades his knight for a bishop and, you know, just obviously my regular minor piece trade, except they, they call it one of the most talked about moves ever because it was sort of, you know then the knight by appearances was 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 significantly stronger than than the bishop and they do and they have a nice soft touch with that because they actually you know there are moments where like the the person who played it you know had some sort of deeper or at least alternate understanding than the conventional wisdom at the time, and the engine may or may not have proved them right subsequently, but you know they're not too anything that the engine has subsequently uh altered the judgment of they're not too harsh about they'll point it out but in a gentle way which i think is kind of the the proper treatment because you know we're all humans
2: <laughs> yeah and um and we're all humans and these these authors are not above some humor um also it's it's not really a a book of um quips and anecdotes and so on but they do quite often have like a a very dry um you know wit with these things like uh, for example in 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 one of the lessons from the, the game between Karpov and Dorfman, 1976 uh, Soviet Championship, um, which is a game where Karpov sort of, you know, uncharacteristically for his what he what, the way he became later known, engaged in a very sharp sacrificial attack in the Sicilian Defense and and chased the king around. And he said, it, the notes say, uh, if you play either side of the Sicilian, study the knight d five sacrifice, when it works, when it doesn't, what it eats for breakfast. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so like, you know, have, have have intimate knowledge of like the common sacrifices in the opening lines you play, you know, and especially, you know, that one, I think, is is a good piece of a good piece of advice.
0: Yeah. And this book is a good way generally to sort of expose <laughs> yourself to different openings, I think, at least. I'm I, speaking for me, maybe not for you, Chris, but I feel like I can get trapped in my repertoire a little bit. I mean, obviously I follow top-level chess, so sometimes I see openings that I don't play, but certainly I place an undue emphasis on openings I play on my own, whereas something like this, it just sort of runs the gamut. And again, because because it's not uh, not as many 19th century games, it doesn't have that litany of like Evan's Gambits and King's Gambits that you might see in some of the other sort of uh Classic games collections, which to my mind is is a good thing. Yeah,
2: it's got a, a really diversity of games in all respects. You know, there are lots of very subtle and lengthy end games. There are some. I think there's a couple of games under twenty moves. Even um, yeah. uh, the 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 Larson Spassky uh, miniature from the. Um, USSR versus the rest of the world match where Larson got got crushed in like 17 moves or something is in there. But generally, they don't go for those like sort of miniatures. They generally go for more more meaty games. Um, uh, I did. I thought I detected a bit of a pattern where, like, there were some you know when there were some short games that Black won, like you know Black wins by you know by by brilliancy or something like that, you know. And but uh, longer games that that White wins, and there is a concentration in some openings too. Like there are a lot of. Um, botvinic semi-slav games yeah that was one of these complicated crazy games with like past pawns yeah. on the seventh rank and so on um you know they're they're just they're just fun they're the kind of games that i think i would say provide a lot of entertainment value um just for like watching a movie as though you're watching a movie or something like that you know instead of um, as much as learning something about chess
0: yeah and i've never been a slav player so between that and reading the anon files uh... <laughs> Like, uh, I definitely, <laughs> definitely feel my ignorance exposed. I've just, just to be a proper chess dude and I need, I need to study it more, but. um You should put it in your repertoire.
2: Now you're an expert having studied all these <laughs> yeah, games with it. Yeah,
0: it's true. Um But, but yeah, I mean, what, what else do we need to say about this book? I mean, the, we're, there's not, I feel like there's not as much Chris and I resolved not to just like say such and such game was cool and such and such game was cool because that doesn't make for the best podcast, but that really is when you sit down and read the book, that's, that's what strikes you. It's just like one, like incredible breathtaking spectacle after another. So um, we will avoid giving the blow by blow. But I mean, I, I think in summation before we get to uh, a couple questions and, and catch up with, with Chris is just a strong recommendation you know, my only caveat is I didn't love the app, but I did love, especially again with the variations, with so many variations and being able to pick and choose which ones you play through um, on the app. That alone makes it makes it worth it. But I mean, is there anything else we should say, Chris, uh, about the book? I,
2: yeah, I mean, I have I have a, I have a couple of things I want to talk about. I, I know I mentioned it in the interview with with Graham, but I want to come back and harp some more on the games that aren't there. Um, and I did a little research on this. I even talked to. Um, you know, renowned bookseller Fred Wilson um, about other books like this that that he could think of, and I looked into a couple myself. And the the game that I saw most often mentioned as one of the greatest games of all time. In fact, I think I saw it mentioned one place as the best game of all time. Um, is um, not in this book, and we didn't ask. Um, we didn't ask Graham about it. It's um, uh, it's uh, it's the game between um, Bagoljubov and. Um, Alakine in 1922, and it's memorable because there's a queen sacrifice, and then like Black's pawn goes to c2, and White can't stop it from queening on on c1. And um, I think Chernov maybe once rated it the best game ever, or something like that. Soltis has it as like the fourth best game of the 20th century, you know, and it didn't make it into didn't make it into this book. Um, so uh, I admire the authors of this book for sort of their objective approach. You know, as objective as you can be, it's inherently a subjective choice. What's a great game, right? No computer is going to tell you what games are great and what games aren't great. Um, but they had three people rating them. They used a point rating scale. Like if if this were psychological research, that would be pretty high quality. You know, attempts to get at some to create an objective scale out of subjective judgments, right? Um, you know, you might think that if you got three more grandmasters and had them do the same thing, they might get a similar result as as these authors did. But still, there were interesting things that got. You know that got left out and that Bogoli above um Alekheim game was the was the one that um that jumped out at me um as well as of course the lack of of morphe games um but then when I was playing through it and I thought you know w- who's missing from this? I was surprised they couldn't find the game by Aronian um to include um oh
0: wait well, I'm, I'm sorry, sorry there right? were two
2: games that he lost, but I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't no no victories of Aronian's. and um considering that he's got like the fourth highest you know fide rating ever or something like that and it's not like he's a young guy, like, well, he's young, but, you know, chess career wise, he's, you know, he's in his 30s um, and um, no, no wins by Nakamura. They, he got they have a couple of nice losses, but but no wins by um, um, by Hikaru either. Uh, yeah. And um, I, you know, that's that's why there are other books. Right. You can find all those games in other books or other sources and uh, and, and so on. But it's, it's kind of interesting how their process resulted in, you know, omitting some people who we normally think of as, as if people in games that we normally think of as like near the absolute. You know, near the absolute top, um, it's inherent to any kind of collection like this, right? There's a subjective aspect to it, and part of the interest of it is seeing like what they, you know, what they wound up picking as as the best.
0: Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I agree that it's it's nice that they kept kept the process so pure because yeah, I, I don't know, I would have I would have wanted a Nakamura game, a Nakamura win, in there personally, but again, I, it's it's doesn't detract from from the book at all because the, the games that are in there are, are so incredible. And, and as, as Chris said, like the fact that there's 20, you know, games from within the past decade or so, like, you know, that a couple of them I hadn't seen. So, I mean, it's, it's, uh, there, there's lots to learn from, from all of these games.
2: Yeah. And some that like we watched, like, you know, on, you know, just 24 yeah. or, or whatever, like while they were happening, to then go back over them later, you actually like see so much more when you, when you see good annotations of them and all of the, you know, all the alternatives, you know, that were, were happening and, um, and so on. Can I ask you a quiz question,
0: Ben? Let's do it. Sure.
2: <laughs> um, so uh, intrigued by, you know, who was in the book and, and who wasn't, I counted up how many games uh, each player has, which wasn't that hard because there's a player index in the back. So I only had to, you know, count a few lines of numbers. So who do you think has the most games, won or lost? Uh, or, or not, many, not many draws in this book, but the most games with any outcome in the book.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Well, I was looking when we talked about omissions, I did go to the index then because the famed Fisher Larson Dragon game, I was like, I don't remember seeing that. So then I went and I sort of saw how many Fisher games there were. And then I was thinking of uh, Alakine's gun. So I che- sort of checked Alakine. So I, I know that I feel like there were a handful of each of those. Um, I'm not sure if there was m- no one, no one just from thinking back and reading it. I, I don't immediately think of anyone else like definitely having more. So I'm going to go with Al Yakin as my answer.
2: You are way off. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the winner, the, the winner going away is Anand. Um, wow, Anand has 14 games. Maybe that's why he was willing to write them a, a forward or something a like that. Forward, yeah. I told him, we well, are the most in this book of anybody." Um, 14 Anand games are in there. I didn't count up how many he won and lost. Definitely, there's some there's some good losses by him um, against Carlson, for example, and Kasparov in the World Championship matches that he lost to both of those. But there are also great, you know, many great wins of his. Um, I'll just tell you, I'll just tell you the next few in case you're. You know, yeah, let's can- hear it. Tal with 11. Um, so instead of a lot of Alakine games, there are a lot of Tal games, um, some of them sparkling, of course. Then, of course, Kasparov. Fisher has nine. Um, Karpov has uh, eight. Um, but one that was especially high that I, I hadn't you know, uh, noticed at the time is Topalov, who also has 10 games. So Topalov actually tied for third most games in the greatest games of all time collection. Now, again, like one of his games is his loss against Kasparov. Um, in I think 1999, often regarded as the greatest game of all time, where Kasparov chases his king all the way down to, you know, down to the first rank and 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 mates and, and mates it um, on the first rank. But a lot of great wins of his too. Um, Alakine only four games in, this, in so, this.
0: So I was right about the handful, but wrong about the uh, com- comparative. Yeah, exactly. How that stacks um, up against?
2: Yes, exactly. Capablanca only six. Carlson only six. Um, of course, he still has more, you know, many more years ahead of him, um, hopefully. Um, some of the best, some of the players with the most games who didn't become world champion were um, Ivanchuk, Caruana um, and Shirov. Um, and Caruana did win, um, I think, at least three of those games, the, of the four games that they that they included.
0: Yeah. And then sort of deconstructing this, you know, what I'd mentioned in the interview with Graham about these games do have, I would say, a, a tactical bent um, overall. I, I do stand by that that statement so it sort of checks out that there's fewer carlson games lots of sheer games you know like uh Ivanchuk making a sort of out you know i don't know about outsized obviously the guy's a legend but not a world champion but several appearances in the book it, it does kind of make sense that that uh some of these uh tactical wizards get uh overly represented yep um Uh, You know, one nice thing they do in the book, um, which we didn't talk about too
2: much, is they present them in in chronological order, which is good because, you know, when you read the biography of a player in like game seven and then he shows up again in like game 15 and game 20, they don't have to go back, you know, over it again. But they also, in the table of contents, print um, the number of votes that each game got. Um, So you can actually go back and sort of, you know, construct the rankings if you want. And um, the maximum number of votes a game could get was 15. And I think only four games got Got the full fifteen votes. Um, amazingly, one one game that got fourteen votes was just played um, two you know two or three years ago, um, which is a Daniel Dubov game. Got got fourteen votes, which is one off from the most you can possibly get. Um, also, a King Hunt game where the king gets chased all the way around the board over onto the queen side and made it right. on a, an A three or something like that when it started out on G eight. You know, after having been cast having castled.
0: Yeah, and and bringing it back to Anand, um, there's. There's nice touches like, um, like his famous win over Aronian from about eight years ago. Obviously, like there's a famous video where Sagar Shah interviews a bunch of people about it, and it's been compared to the the legendary. Uh, Rattlerie, Rubenstein game, and so it's nice that they like are able to trace it forward and talk about in the sort of lessons from the game, like know your classics, you know, <laughs> like um, because the 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 uh, resemblance is is uncanny between the games. It really can't be a coincidence. And I believe Sagar asked on and about that at some point, and he he mentioned a sort of conscious memory and there's other little nuggets like uh there's another on game that which one it is i'm not going to remember off the top of my head but where he played prep that he'd been sitting on for 10 years and there there are like little nuggets of um of just like behind the scenes type stuff where like the opening prep plays like an an outsized impression obviously that's something and i think they even mentioned this somewhere in the book that's kind of taking a back seat now because. Um, like they had a quote from Kasparov, uh, where he said, this took me 20 minutes to play at the board, or it might've been two minutes to play at the board, but two days of preparation leading up to it, like 40 hours of studying 48 hours of studying the position before you sit down to play it. And then you win the game in two, you know, using two minutes because you've already studied it. Like all those little nuggets about the intense prep and the sort of behind the scenes stuff that, you know, it can still happen, but now everyone's on relatively equal footing with the engines.
2: I I know this is an unpopular opinion, but a lot of people seem to derogate those kinds of games because they say it was all preparation or it was all the computer or something like that. There's always some criticism, you know, of someone for winning by preparation, but preparation is a part of every sport. First of all, there's no sport that doesn't involve preparation. There's no sport that doesn't involve studying the opponent and preparing something for the opponent, you know, and understanding what the opponent is likely to do and not do or, or making guesses or predictions or something like that, right? Um, and to me, one of the great things about this book and, and about the fact that in chess we can study the 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 famous games like this is that what happens on the board has its own independent significance, regardless of what happened before the move started to get played. So the fact that, you know, Anand, I think it was Anand Adams, um, where he he played this brilliant attack as white in the Ru Lopez. I think that's the game you were talking about. Yeah. Um, uh
0: That's right. You
3: know,
2: so what? So what? It's a great game, like play through the game and you will see, you know, and then some of the side variations are even more beautiful, you know, that it's just, um, it's, it's incredible chess. And that's what the sense I think you get from a lot of these games is kind of like watching a movie or watching a, a sporting encounter or something like that. Um, where, uh, you know, the advantage passes back and forth. Um, as Graham said, there's like a critical moment, which is something we often talk about in chess, like, they're always easier to see in hindsight, you know, than, than at the time, but there's usually some kind of critical moment where the situation is really complex and someone has to make the right decision. And sort of amazingly, these guys did. (laughs) Um, uh, well, they're almost all guys. Um, there's, I think one or two Judith Polgar games, um, uh, in, in, in the book. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, it's just, you know, it's worth, um, I think it's good for like um reminding ourselves like why we're excited about chess also is like you know maybe we can't you know we're unlikely to ever play a game like this, but you know often we have moments in our games which are kind of like this where we discover like a great sacrifice or something like that or an amazing move, or we get those two exclamation points you know from the right. you know from the app or something like that afterwards or whatever and I see people post those on social media and stuff like this is the kind of you know this is the kind of stuff that like makes us really really love chess, I think a lot of the time.
0: Yeah. I mean, even what you were saying about the idea of like appreciating it, appreciating the, the quote beauty of when someone lands some prep, you know, which obviously is taken to its most extreme form when these super grandmasters are playing. But like for, for you and I, like, like when, when you like prepared an opening even if it wasn't specifically for an opponent but like you learned a line and it gives you a good position and then you play the position and then you don't screw it up that's like a a magical feeling you know um that, that, that we can relate to the superstars on a small level because we do it on a you know miniature scale
2: yeah i i have a memory of a game i played once Um, when I was in, I think it was shortly after I was in college and I was, I was like a 2200 player or something like that, USCF. And I played some game, which felt like it was very thematic from start to finish. Like it was, I think it was a French defense or something like that. I was white and you exploit the dark squares and the French defense and you trade off the dark squared Bishop and you infiltrate on the dark squares and so on. And I, I said to one of my teammates, it was a league match afterwards. I said, Wow, that was one of the first games I can remember playing that I really felt like it went exactly the way I wanted it to the whole time. Like I really understood what was going on all the time. Not that it was a quick crush or anything like that. It was sort of like a slow, you know, win um but any, you know, these these kind of games I think um can show you like how, you know, well, as you say, a lot of these games are more concrete and tactical, but still they they can show you how those positional ideas, you know, can be sort of followed through, but also just, you know, the the joy of what we're aiming for. And if you're You know, if you watch some Grandmaster Tournament Online and you're like, oh, all the games were drawn this round, you know, well, pick up this book or some book like it, you know, and look at some of those. And then you'll, you know, you'll remember that, you know, for all the draws that get played, you know, even the great ones, you know, there are so many great decisive games as well um, that are interesting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, again, strong recommendation. it will keep you busy for a long time. Great value. Uh, you can grow into it. Um, is there is there anything else to add before we get to our sort of uh, unrelated catch up, Chris? Um, I I don't think of, the last thing I'll say is like they should have they, they you know they really should have like
2: um, put in more engine games. There's one engine game which is Deep Blue versus Kasparov, game one from their first match, which is sort of like the least fa- less famous of the of the Deep Blue Kasparov games. It's not the one where Kasparov resigned in a drawn position, which probably was omitted from the game because the loser resigned in a drawn position, which is right. probably dings it on the quality scale, you know, like a massive mistake by Kasparov on the last move of the game, the historical significance scale couldn't go up high enough, you know, to, you know, to compensate for that mistake. But, um, but like a couple of the alpha zero stockfish games, I think, you know, everybody was so amazed by those games when they came out, you know, um, and, uh, I, I think, you know, uh, there are so many great engine games, um, That really show us like new possibilities about chess. And you've talked about it with like Matthew Sadler and people like that, you know, quite a bit. Um, I think those games deserve to be in like collections of great games because it's not great games by humans. It's great games, you know, so um, there might be less drama when computers are playing each other, but there might be like uh, other compensating um, factors. So that's that's all I'll add. But, you know, they're when they do the fifth edition, maybe they'll maybe they'll come around.
0: Yeah, I have to admit, I, I come down on the other side of this argument, Chris. Even though I love Matthew Sadler's book, and I I know there's tons to learn from engine games, to me it still, and I know we've talked about this in prior interviews. Um, it it just in this book it left me a little cold. I was just can't get fired up for an engine game when there's all these these giants playing. But
2: didn't you love that that that? the alpha zero game where like white plays queen E4 and queen H4 and queen H1 and sacks a piece and just plays down a piece and so on. Wasn't that just one of the most amazing
0: chess yeah, games i ever saw? They're, they're amazing games. It's just, they they feel out of place to me. Um, in, in the I don't know. I still consider something like this, like the human history of chess. I mean, it's, it's the author's decision. And obviously I'm still a huge fan of the book, but but to me, I, I wouldn't want more personally. But you probably if, don't
2: like watching robots play soccer either. <laughs>
0: exactly. You're one of the, you're one of those people. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, it's not the same. Obviously, there there is uh, tons to learn from it. It's just I feel like it deserves its own little island. Yeah, is is generally uh, my opinion. Um, so okay, let's get to these Patreon questions, Chris, because you're always a popular guest. Um, And we have a question from Tyron Ross-Price, shout out to Tyron, um, who asks, he says, does Dr. Shabri have any book recommendations with actionable scientific information for aging chess players looking to keep their cognitive skills as sharp as possible for as long as possible? Maybe there could be a new podcast series beyond Adult Improver called Senior Sustainer. How in the world did Kortinoi stay strong for so long?
2: Well, that's a lot of questions. Um. I mean, the question I think sort of points to some of the answer, and I hate to be pessimistic, but I think like at a certain point, sustaining your level is as much of a victory as as raising your level, because there is sadly a natural, um, you know, change over time in some of our cognitive abilities. And I think we've talked about this before, like, you know, fluid intelligence, which is kind of what we're using when we're calculating during the game, you know, does tend to sort of, you know, go down, especially like probably starting in your 50s is sort of, you know, when you know, um, uh, when, when that probably tends to happen more. Now, you can find, like, there are always new studies coming out on this. When, when does it peak? When does it, how steep is the slope? You know, what, exact, you know, what exactly is, is going on? Um, but uh, I think the, the place to look for actionable advice is not in literature that tells you to play brain games or to do crossword puzzles or whatever. Those are all fun things to do. Although brain games usually seem boring to me. That seems like torture and they don't really work. But probably um, things like exercise, diet, sleep, um, and um, maybe trying to play when you're at your best because I've noticed myself, the older I get, I feel like the more my level varies during the day and during the week. So if I'm playing like um, a league chess league game on a weeknight after I've been working all day and been up for 12 hours already, I'm much worse than if I play it, let's say, Saturday afternoon or something like that. Um, now, we can't control like when our over-the-board tournaments usually are. They they always, you know, in the U.S., right, they have this jam-packed schedule where they try to cram in, you know, five slow games in a weekend. So we're kind of stuck with that. But I have noticed that some older players, like I've noticed, I mean, not to cast any aspersions, like Larry Kaufman's a great player, but he's not the youngest player either. And I've noticed that he takes buys um, yeah. you know, when he plays in a weekend tournament. I mean, he's probably not trying to win the whole tournament. He's there to play interesting chess and have fun you know, and maybe get some food for thought for his next opening repertoire book or something like that. But, but he'll take some buys, right. So that he probably, because he thinks he maximizes his level and his enjoyment of the game, you don't have to play like all five rounds or whatever, you know? So I would say, look to those kinds of like self-management things rather than a way of like boosting your brain, like exercise, I think goes a long way. Aerobic exercise, especially, um, you know, um, t- being generally healthy is probably the best you can do. And then in, ter- in terms of, um um you know, chess exercises. Uh, I'm not a chess trainer, right? You know, I have my own coach. You know, I don't want to like give anybody coaching advice when I don't, you know, coach anybody myself, but um, the concrete knowledge is probably not what you're going to lose, right? And if you're an older player, you probably have absorbed a lot of concrete knowledge already. You've probably played over a lot of the classics, you know, and the, uh, you just have come across them, you know, and you probably read a lot of books like about positional chess and so on but it's the pattern recognition and the calculation, right. That are the things that can, I think I even notice like after a few days, right. If I don't do tactics, I feel like my tactical vision is a little bit worse, you know? So I think keeping up with that stuff is, is important when you're um, you know, when, when you're as, as you, um, you know, as you age, there was, I mean, also I, I did, you know, you did give me this question in advance and it occurred to me that there's a re- very recent book that came out that I haven't really dipped into very much, but it looks really interesting. It's, it's called um, cognitive chess, um, by a guy named Konstantin Chernyshov. Um, I'll give you the the details. Um, it's a Russell Enterprises book, and it's a lot of like blindfold calculation exercises and visualization exercises. Um, and uh those obviously are becoming more and more popular these days. You've you know done them on the show and so on, but I think there's probably some value in doing those kinds of uh exercises as well. The um, you know, the the farther you get into your career, let's put it that way. <laughs>
0: Okay. Tons of great advice there. Yeah. And, and what you say about sort of the, the away from the board approach about uh, managing your energy and taking buys and being fit that, that really resonates. And, and, uh, you know, these are uh, traits to traits that take on an added import as we get older, even away from the board. So you, you know, even if you're wrong. <laughs>
2: it's uh, yeah, yeah. I don't think any of this advice is special to chess, really. I think it, it yeah. improves your performance in, in most aspects of, of, you know of of the most aspects of life right Yeah. Um, it's, i mean it's sort of obvious advice i suppose but we often think that chess advice has to be about chess right whereas it's it's a performance you know activity right and it's it's not a trivia quiz you know yeah. it's, it's like a, a skilled performance under time constraints activity um, you know it's not a you know it's it's not a it's, it's not a history test or something right so you know that all those things are going to matter
0: Well said. Yeah. So great question from Tyron and shout out to all the senior sustainers. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And the other other Patreon question is from Alex Friedman, which is a simpler question, which is just, does chess have a Mozart effect? And uh, the Mozart effect, correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, but basically the idea is that if you're listening to classical music while you uh, are engaged in some sort of study, it may trigger positive, uh, emotions that help you retain things or, uh, think more clearly. Is that about right?
2: No, it's even more, I mean, it's, it's even more, um, I mean, I'll say more absurd than that. I mean, it's, (laughs) uh, it's, it's, it's absurd in hindsight. It was a, it was a a popular and, you know, sort of somewhat widely believed scientific claim in the nineties that if you listen to Mozart's music, um, before you do a cognitive test, like an IQ test, let's say, or an SAT, or something like that, you'll do better on the test by a lot than if you had just like been in silence beforehand or listened to noise or you know rock music or something like that. Um, and basically, that turned out to not be true. Um, it was just the the original study that made that claim got a lot of publicity, but other people couldn't replicate it. You know, there is no known benefit from listening to classical music you know, before you do something. So, um, if the question is, should I listen to classical music before I sit down at the chessboard to play? I would say, if you like classical music, go ahead. If you like to listen to it while you're playing and the rules allow it, that's, that's fine too. Um, but there's no solid evidence that that's, you know, inherently going to make you any, any better or worse. Another way of interpreting the question though, is, you know, um, is, you know, Mozart's music is sort of like, you know, I don't know much about classical music, but it's like the genius, you know, among the genius works of, of music, right? So could playing over the classics of chess, like make you better at chess or something like that? You know, well, I, I think the answer is, is yes. Like, you know, we've just, we just talked about it and I don't think it's a terrible warm up activity, you know, before a future tournament to play over some classics at the very least there might be inspiration from it, if not some concrete, you know, knowledge that you, you know, that you gain or something like that. Um, and, and also the other, the other connection between the Mozart effect and chess is that, um, you know, chess and classical music are both the kinds of activities that are really associated with, you know, intellectualism, you know, high intelligence, um, academic success, um, all of that. Um, so um, I think that is sort of part of the reason why people think that like playing chess is going to make you smarter. Um, or it's going to improve your thinking skills, and I think the evidence is very mixed that it will actually make you smarter. Um, but I think it's reasonable to believe that it sort of fosters some good mental habits of concentration and um, uh, you know sustained attention and um, you know being able to study things and, and make plans and all that kind of stuff. Even though those things don't necessarily show up on let's say IQ tests or math tests or whatever, and we, we've talked about that before. And I think it's it's still true that. Um, you know, you shouldn't get involved in chess just because you think it's going to make you smarter. But on the other hand, it will probably do more for you than a lot of other activities that you could be doing at the time at the same time.
0: Yeah, I mean, it could be the placebo effect. But I I definitely since I've been competing regularly, I sort of uh, I've feel an, an increased sharpness, maybe not when I'm playing, but the rest of the time at least. Um, That's because now
2: you feel like a real chess player and the real chess <laughs> player is sharp and smart and so on. Before when you were just doing a podcast, you didn't feel like a real chess player. Now you're back feeling like a real player. <laughs> I, I, I sort of agree with you. Like it like, you know, I think we talked about this maybe in the first time I was on that like one of the one of the most unique experiences of chess is like sitting at the board and doing one thing for five straight hours. Yeah, exactly. And concentrating and like it it's sort of you know, especially for people like me who are not like athletic and so on, it really gives you a feeling of like performance skill. Especially if you win a game, you know, if you if you win a nice game, it's like wow! It's like you know, I, you you feel like um, you you get a feeling of uh, mental power or something from it. Whether that means you're any smarter, I I don't think so, but it certainly is a you know, it's it's, it's a it's a um, it's a psychological boost that that you know that is not nothing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well said. Well well, Chris, thanks for the great insights. And uh last thing before we say our goodbyes, you did you did tell me in online chat that, that you're you're plugging away at a book, a non non-chess related book, although there will be some chess in it. Uh can you can you reveal any more details for our listeners?
2: Um, I can't reveal any more details because my co-author and I have not decided <laughs> whether and when we're going to reveal any details, let alone like discussed it with the publisher. But um if all goes well in about you know, a year or so, there will be another um, uh, book out from, um, uh, with my name on the cover. And I think it will be of interest to chess players, even though it's not a chess book. It's a general audience book, kind of like the Invisible Girl. Gorilla was. But um, I think it will be of interest to people who play chess and other games and, and anybody who's, uh, really, it should be of interest to everybody. That's, you know, that's, that's the audience. Yeah. Everybody must buy this book. But chess yeah. players yeah. will yeah. be certain to find some interesting things in it.
0: And and we'll be sure to have you on to discuss it to uh, to do our part in haranguing people as we should. All right. Um, Sorry to
2: be so mysterious, but I look forward to coming back and talking about it, whatever it is. I,
0: excellent. Yeah. And one last housekeeping note for for anyone listening. Um, this is the March chess books recaptured, and I I may believe it or not skip April. Um, I'm working on potentially lining up a a special guest in which case there will be a an april book recap but if that doesn't happen i'm interviewing some authors for the regular interview show and i need a month to catch my breath so um if it it may or may not appear in april but if not we'll be back in may um so so chris thanks as always this has been been fantastic um thanks for the great suggestion and yeah in summation definitely uh recommend uh, listeners pick up uh, Mammoth Book of Games in in your preferred format.
2: Absolutely, thanks thanks again for having me, and uh, look forward to next time.
0: Thanks to everyone who helps make Perpetual Chess possible. Big shout out to my producer Matthew Passy. I'd also like to thank the Blue Wire Podcast Network with whom we are proud to be affiliated. Be sure to follow us on social media: beneficial One on Twitter. At Perpetual Chess on Instagram and or you can join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group. You can email me Ben at PerpetualChessPod.com. And of course, last but not least, I'd like to give major thanks to the Perpetual Chess Patreon and PayPal supporters. Those who choose to join that community based on their level of support can do things like submit questions for guests of the show, have access to live Zoom QA lectures with Grandmasters who often have appeared on the show going over over chess games answering questions stuff like that and you can even get access to ad-free perpetual chess if that's your preference so but most of all thanks to everyone for listening and we will catch you all on the next episode